Welcome to Good Christelfian Talks. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. And I'm Brian. Thank you for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help us get the Bible in our daily news feed. We post a new episode at the start of each week with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to listen to. And now, let's talk more about this week's talk. This week, we're listening to an exhortation that was given by Brother Frank Abel back in 1998 at the Idlewild Bible School. Brother Frank is from the Shelburne, Ontario Ecclesia in Canada, and this exhortation, which was given right at the end of the Idlewild Bible School, he's taking a look at the lessons from Rahab in the story of Joshua. Uh, And what I really appreciate about this is it's a really good reminder for us. Uh, He starts by talking about some of the ebbs and flows in faith that we can feel in our lives and takes lessons from Rahab in how that we can apply that so that we can more weather those ebbs and flows as we live our life waiting for the return of Christ. Uh, I really appreciate it. He does a really great job at looking at the details of the story and pulls out some really awesome nuggets that I'll save for you to discover when you listen to it to be able to kind of put yourself more in Rahab's place and understand what was going on both for her, for the spies, uh, and for everything else. It's uh, This exhortation to me is just a classic example of understanding what is really great about some of the Sunday school lessons that we've learned growing up and how many details sometimes we can lose when we're otherwise just focused on the overall story uh, that just makes them more powerful as you dig deeper and deeper into them. As always, thank you for listening and for sending in any suggestions. I hope that you enjoy this exhortation and find it to be uplifting for your walk. With that, I will turn it over to our brother Frank Abel for his exhortation entitled Lessons from Rahab. Good morning, brothers and sisters and young people. We have one final time to open our Bibles and to open our minds and to consider some things that will help us, we pray, when we come down from this mountain. I suppose there's not too many young people here have the tendency to wake up early, especially at Bible school. But uh, some of the older people, out of habit, when they wake up in the morning, it's, uh, it's very difficult to get back to sleep. And sometimes there's real benefits in noticing that there is quite a time between the first rays of day and before you ever see the sun. When you think of it as a proportion of the day, it's quite a a period of time, which in various parts of the world, of course, varies, but in our part of the world would be about 60 to 90 minutes at this time of the year. Now, God has told us that there are certain things to think of when we see things like that. Um, You may not have thought of it this way, but in Joel chapter 3, in verse 1 and 2, he talks about the return of the Jewish people from captivity. And he does say, in those days, in that time, when I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. So there are certain things prophetically which are like the dawning of a day. The first rays of the sun mean something. The full sun means something else. 
And it would seem to me that there were good reasons for our brethren and sisters, quite possibly a number of you here, who can remember back to the joy and the excitement in our community in 1947 and in 48, when finally Israel became a state. And Joel chapter 3, without any doubt, we were now seeing the return of the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Obviously, there would be people who, who would have said they could have seen those first rays of light in 1917, sometime before that. But there was no question in 1948 that the first rays of light were there. Now, the characteristic of the first rays of light till the actual appearance of the sun is that everything becomes brighter and brighter. You can see more. You might guess that there could be some link between that and what the prophet Daniel said, that in the latter days, knowledge would be increased. That's exactly what happens when the sun becomes higher and higher and almost comes to the horizon. You can see things you couldn't see at night. So the brotherhood was looking very strongly for the time of the gathering of all nations because it tells us, at that time, I will also gather all nations. So for some time now, there's been high expectations in the brotherhood of the return of Christ that, yes, there may not be many more times that we will break bread together until he comes. And that's the joy of our community. That's what so often binds us together when we leave the assembly that we are in this morning, that we may very well the next time see each other at the calling together of ourselves by the Lord. Now, what was interesting this year, we had a difficult time with the uh, strawberries in the spring because we had some very late frosts. And to deal with that, you have to get up early in the morning at the earliest you can see the strawberries, get the hoses out and wash the frost off the actual berries. The frost doesn't kill the plant, but it does damage the fruit. Now, you have a period of time to do that. It's from the first light of day, when you can actually see what you're doing, till the sun rises. When the sun's actually on the horizon and provides heat to melt that ice itself, then it's too late to do anything. So it's a unique period, and we had a, lots of time to think about spiritual analogies this year because we had four nights in a row in the first week of June when we had quite heavy frosts. And I was thinking... I wonder how typical it is that we go through this roller coaster ride between the first rays of light and the actual sun appearing, that people's expectations of the Lord rises and then, then it falls, and it rises and it falls. And you wonder how many times you can go through that before you get a little weary of the process and you get a little bit callous to the, even the suggestion that the Lord is coming or is coming is near because we've been through this scenario so many times, it just seems to be another one of those times. So in 1967, <clears throat> same people looked at what was happening in the Middle East, saw Jerusalem now becoming free, not totally, but becoming free of Gentile domination and began to rejoice again. But nothing came of it. And we had to wait until 1973 before something else significant happened in the Middle East. And expectations rose again. 
and then fell. And then in 1989, the events in Europe and the Brotherhood's expectations again arose and fell. And then the Gulf War, and there may be a number of other times, like even this week, being together and being away from the influence of the world and talking about these things, our, our expectations and our feelings about the coming of the Lord are probably high. But I wonder what they'll be like tomorrow and later on in the week when we get back into those grooves that we came out of so happily at the beginning of last week. Now we have to deal with this, brothers and sisters, this rising and falling of expectations. There can't be any question that when you see the first rays of light, the sun will appear on the horizon. Being that way ever since God created it, and he guarantees it will continue, that day and night will continue before him. So we don't doubt that there will be an appearance of the sun. We don't doubt that our Lord will come, but we would sure like to have a little more comfort as to how to deal with the rise and the fall of the expectations. Well, we need to go to the Bible to get that comfort. We were here yesterday in class, and there's one major example in the life of Rahab we'd like to look at before we leave the subject. In Hebrews chapter 6, you may remember the theme we were working on was revealed to us in verse 12, that you be not slothful or lazy or fall back into sort of the spiritual doldrums, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, it's those two characteristics we're working on. It's not as if they were all there was. We know that there are only two of many, seven other fruits of the Spirit we need to develop, but there are at least two main things we need at this time in our lives, faith and patience. And we'd like to point it out in the life of this young lady, Rahab. It's, there's four things, I think, in the life of, of that young woman that are remarkable. And if we can remember them around the four points, it will certainly help us later on. I've often wondered... When you consider Rahab mentioned in the New Testament, it almost seems a slam on her to find her mentioned as Rahab the harlot. Why would you ever mention where a person came from when you talk about them years after their conversion? Why would you mention that that's where she was initially found? So, for instance, in James, uh, in chapter 2, where it's a verse about commending this young lady, yet it still says... Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? We can't forget, brothers and sisters, how the gospel net extends out so far as to embrace people that maybe even we wouldn't reach out to. But God, as he reached out to the apostle Paul and he considered himself the chief sinner because he had persecuted the ecclesia. That's the breadth that we must understand as well concerning this young lady. I don't know for sure, but you know, you wonder sometimes why the record mentions certain things and it doesn't immediately tell us. But it does say that when she took the spies up to the roof of her house, she covered them with flax of, 
uh, with stalks of flax. Now, I don't know too much about flax. I haven't really worked with it much on the farm, but we have had a little experience. And flax is the kind of a, of a, of a, a crop that after you get the seed out of it, you pretty well have to burn it because the stock is so strong and so likely to entangle anything that, that tries to rake it or bale it or some, some other, otherwise deal with it that most often in our area, people growing flax will burn the stalks. We do know, however, that the stalks are used in the scriptures in another sense. So that if we go to Revelation chapter 19... It talks about people who were clothed, were clothed in linen, verse 8. To her, the bride, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So you see this flax in the initial stages of what could become fine linen, or righteousness. And it seems to me that that unfolds a little bit about the life of this lady, of how in the later part of the scriptures, the New Testament, it keeps on bringing back the idea of Rahab the harlot. She covered the spies with stalks of flax, unprocessed righteousness, but nevertheless, the first stage of it. And so many people we find in the scriptures, when we first see them, they're just in the first stage of being called out because God's seen something in them that will mature into the bride of Christ so that that person can be clothed with the fine linen, the righteousness of the saints. So we see Rahab initially deliberately lying to cover up the fact she had hid these spies. We see her as a harlot coming out from the world. That's where she was. That's where many people that we preach to are found today. But we don't stop preaching to them. We don't stop reaching out to them because that's where they start. If, in fact, God is drawing them, then they will respond to the gospel message. And I believe that is the point one about the life of this woman. She represents the Gentiles. They weren't found in the way of righteousness. But there was something about them that illustrated that given the opportunity, they would develop the fine linen, the righteousness of the saints. Now, what is stated about this person is very brief. We have one chapter. We have a few comments on it later on, but just really have the one chapter. So as the scriptures come to our aid so often with just the minimum number of words, but saying quite a lot in those words, we find her commended in verse 11, chapter 2 of Joshua. She says to the spies that in terms of what she had heard, because it does say that, verse 10, we heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, which were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. 
Now, it's that declaration of this young lady which separated her, it would seem, from everybody else in Jericho. There was, it would seem, 99% of the people all melted, became useless. There was no courage in them. But in this young woman, what she had seen and heard, or I should shouldn't say seen, because I don't believe she ever did see this. She only saw it in the eye of her mind. It was what she heard and what she made out of those details that convinced her that Yahweh must be God. So she says, for Yahweh, your God, he is God. Now that's the declaration God had tried to get out of the Jews. You go back to Deuteronomy in chapter 4 and see what God specially did besides coming out of Egypt to try to get the Jewish people to come to the same conclusion. So he says, in verse uh, 31, Deuteronomy chapter 4, at verse 31. Maybe we'll read verse 30 for connection. When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come on thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to Yahweh thy God, and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for Yahweh thy God, he is a merciful God, He will not forsake thee, nor destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swear unto them. And he goes on to say, you ask in the days that are past. Ask anywhere you like. Verse 33, was there ever people, did ever people hear the voice of God, which God had arranged for them, speaking out of the fire, as you have heard and lived? Verse 34, had any other God essayed to take him a nation from the midst of another nation, by temptations and signs and wonders and war, and by a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm, and by great terrors according to all that Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that Yahweh, he is God, there is none else beside him. Now God had done this for Israel. They had the opportunity to walk through the Red Sea and see the walls of water on either side, and think about it as they went through. God did that for them, so that they might come to that conclusion that Yahweh, he is God. But here Rahab, without ever seeing it, only hearing it, believed the same thing. She came to the same conclusion. Now that can't help but strike a note in you, going right to the New Testament, You have a look at John chapter 20, verse 29. This was Thomas's declaration of Jesus Christ. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, after he had actually put his, his fingers into the holes that were left in the body of Jesus Christ concerning the the crucifixion. Based on that, Thomas was to say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Now Rahab was the type of those people. She was a person who could, by just hearing, perceive that this must be God. Who could possibly do these great wonders and signs except he be God. Well, that's what we're trying to instill in ourselves, brothers and sisters. That's what we're trying to instill in our children, who can make that connection 
that if God did those things, then he must be God. And it was on the basis of that that this woman then acted in the way of faith, and she was accepted. When 99%, who knows, maybe everybody else in Jericho was weak, their hearts melted in them when they heard these things. Here's a young lady who is filled with faith, who identifies completely with that God, and her life is so totally different because of it. Now look at what she did. That was point two. Point three is, look at what she did. Verse 13, 12 and 13. Again, we have to rely on the text of the scriptures to tell us the details. There's nothing added, nothing to be added, nothing to be taken away. Just look at what it says. She said, now therefore I pray you swear unto me by Yahweh, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house. And give me a true token, that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brethren, and my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And I thought, well, surely she would have said herself, save me. Do you notice that's not in that record? She says, give me a true token that you will save my dad, my mom, my brothers, and my sisters, and all that they have. And I think that's a secret, brothers and sisters, of how to go about our life after we leave the mountain. If our life is consumed in trying to serve and save others, that very process is how we save ourselves. Like someone might say, well, first thing you do is save yourself. And in the sense of doctrine, we'd have that admonition from the scriptures that we save ourselves first so we can save others. But when it comes to working it out, when it comes to the mental processes that drive us in our life, it was her desire, her burning desire to save her dad and her mom, to save her brothers and her sisters and quite possibly her little nieces and her little nephews that was moving her to say these things. She wanted them saved, knowing that as had been done to the two kings on the other side of the Jordan, so they would do to Jericho. They would kill everybody. Now, brothers and sisters, we've talked about this already this week, that if we're really interested in the life of our children, we've got to set examples for them. We've got to show them the way. And instead of many times coming into the conflicts that we have in the Ecclesia with how to do things theoretically, just to show people how to do it is the, the more honorable, the higher ground which we're called to in Christ Jesus. So point number three, like the Lord Jesus Christ, who was laying down his life that we might live, so Rahab was risking her life that her family might live, and in both cases, God honored them so that they lived as well. I mean, there's wonderful principles involved in what drives people, what motivates people to do the things they do in their life. But I tend to think the fourth part of the life of Rahab is what's most benefit to us this morning. Now, you contemplate this, brothers and sisters, of what happened. The spies told her, very specifically in verse 
18 and 19. When we come into the land, find this line of scarlet thread in the window. When did she do it? It seems to me that Rahab must have thought they were going to come back almost immediately. So it tells us just over in verse, in verse uh, 21, According to your word, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. As far as Rahab was concerned, there was not going to be any question about whether she carried out her obligations. As soon as they left, it was bound in the window, ready for her salvation. But they went on and said, You've got to bring your father, your mother, your brethren, and all your father's household home to you. Verse 18. Verse 19. It shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. Whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if any, man be, if any hand be upon him. Further, verse 20. If you utter this our business then we will be quit of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. So Rahab was bound, just like it seems with the scarlet thread, to get it in the window as soon as possible, to go to her father and her mother, which probably were not in her house, and her brothers and her sisters, and to bring them to that house on the wall, and to tell them they had to stay there. They could not go out. And don't tell anybody about what we're doing. You just think about how she could have possibly carried this out. She had no idea of how long it would take. You add up the, the days that are in the scriptures and you come up with at least two weeks. At least two weeks later before they came up and the walls actually fell and she was saved. It would seem to me by how quickly she put the scarlet line in the window that she must have called her family together and told them right away, you can't leave the house. But not knowing it would take two weeks, I've often wondered, did she take enough food? Did she take enough water to last two weeks? You must wonder the excitement that they had when they first saw Israel coming towards the city. And the army, may have been 40,000 of them that came first before the ark and marched around totally silent except for the blowing of those horns by the priests who wouldn't have any idea of what was going to happen. There was no suggestion that the two spies knew how that city would be taken. It's only revealed later on. So she wouldn't have known what was going on. But she had been convinced, she had convinced her dad, her mom, her brothers and her sisters to get into this house and stay there and don't dare go out of that door. And with possibly the rations in the house running short, possibly being on the wall, there would be other problems. You, you think of the sanitation problems they would have in that house. And they saw the armies coming, and they walked around the house, or around the city, and they went back to their camp, and nothing happened. You see, the expectations were raised, and they fell under difficult situations. Maybe not enough food, enough water, cramped conditions, no one can leave the house. Boy, that lady must have had tremendous uh, power over the rest of the family. I've often thought about whether one of my daughters uh, could ever come into our house and have such an influence on all of us. Like it doesn't mention faithful dad or faithful mom or faithful brothers or sisters. It only talks about her. So she's calling the shots and influencing the family. So the next day they come 
And everybody now is thinking, well, I guess they were just looking out over the city the first time and wanted to see where the weaknesses were. So they all come around the city again, silent, except for these priests blowing the horns. No one can figure out what's going on. And again, they they disappear. You can imagine the questioning that may have went on in that house, the brothers and sisters. You really think you know what's going on here? You know, let's just go through this story once, once more. We're not to leave the house. We've got to stay in here. Nobody can say anything to anyone about what's going on. Then the third day. Then the fourth day. Then the fifth day. You would think it, it, it might have been a laughingstock at that stage where people were starting to mock her in the house. I doubt it myself. But you can see that human nature being what it is, now here's the fifth time these people are coming, marching around. What is going on? But he stands, and they don't take the city. And then finally, the seventh day. I think God does put us through trials, brothers and sisters. It's through faith and patience we inherit the promises. It's looking to people like Rahab that when our expectations rise and fall, we remember what it must have been like in that house with the limited rations, with the sanitary conditions that would have been there, all those people in this house on the wall all that time. Yet the scarlet thread was in the window, and she faithfully held on, not knowing how long it would be before the city walls would finally come down. I think it is a tremendous credit to the faith and patience of Rahab, as it is attested to in both James and Hebrews, that this woman was able to influence her household not to go out. Discipline, it would seem, did not break down. They were all there when the walls fell and they came in to take her out of that city. Have a look at Joshua 6, verse 20. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and ass, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and bring out thence the woman and all that she hath, as you swear unto her. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab, and her father, and her mother, and her brethren, and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred, all her families, the margin says, and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and iron they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive, and her father's household, and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day, because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. When we leave this mountain, brothers and sisters, and your faith wavers, just remember this case of the rising and the falling of expectations, of the faith and the patience of this remarkable young woman who was able to influence all her family to be faithful unto the end. For it is through the faith and the patience that we develop that the Lord will surely come and find us waiting.
Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. We hope this talk helped you in your walk. If you would like to hear more, please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review in Apple Podcast or whichever service you are using to help more people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this particular talk, please share it with someone who you think might enjoy it as well. For show notes on the talk you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm slash GCT or check the show notes section of your podcast player. Please share your thoughts on the talk from this week on our Facebook or Instagram pages where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, on Twitter where we are at GCT underscore podcast, or leave a comment on our YouTube channel where these talks are posted as well. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to our email at goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media accounts. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.